Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Kate Campbell, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It is wonderful to be back, Owen, to talk about a very exciting topic today. Yeah, it's probably the most exciting topic that anyone has ever covered in finance, which is risk, uh, risk profiles, risk management, how you determine risk for yourself and your investing and your portfolio and all that sort of wonderful stuff. Uh, we're going to try and use as many examples as we can because risk profiling, at least the way that we've done it as an industry, has kind of been very abstract and we try to make it one size fits all and then expect people to follow that. And oftentimes they never really understand why they're in this a particular place or, or what have you. Financial advisors do a great job, but we're going to try and help you to do it yourself and to try and think about like where you should be investing and where you can consider um, what's an appropriate level of risk to take. So Kate, I guess just to start us off, um, we'll get to what risk profiles are, but how does understanding risk help us at all? When it comes to investing, it always involves risk unless you're putting your money in a term deposit. And I think we often only sort of look at it with what's the risk level of that product? What's the likelihood that I'm going to lose money when I invest in that? But we don't actually think about our own tolerance to risk. And it's very easy, as we've said in the past on the show, it's so easy to say you're a high risk investor until stuff hits the fan. And for many of us that have just been investing for the last few years, uh, we have had a fantastic time in the market and it's been very easy to perform well without actually having to know too much at all. And I think it's really important for people to be prepared and maybe a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about is more about internal reflection and um, talking talking through it. It's a bit more philosophical, let's say, than just sort of facts and figures because I can't just look at you and say you're a high-risk investor or you're a conservative investor. Um, it's something you have to work out for yourself and you might even be wrong when you're trying to figure that out because you might think that you are, but then when you see your portfolio drop from $100,000 to $30,000, not, not $30,000, it drops to $70,000, like say the market fell 30%, that's a really scary experience. And even the most experienced professionals would still be pretty nervous during that time. And it's more about coming to terms with how you as a person are going to react to that because you can have the best portfolio set up in the world. You can know everything there is to know, but if you can't sort of work on your behavior and how you're going to react and how you're going to feel in that circumstance, um, it can definitely lead you astray and it can ruin the best laid investing plans. Um, so I think it, this is a really good episode and we're going to give you some sort of reflection questions to think about because um, this will help you stay calm in a period of market volatility. It'll help you work out what you want to invest in, how much you want to invest in different asset classes. And I, I think we just want to like reiterate, it's a very personal thing and it's going to have to be, you can always go to a financial advisor and they can write you a, a plan and tell you what your risk profile is based on a 30 question questionnaire, but they're relying on you being truthful to those questions. And sometimes you don't even, you think you're being truthful, but maybe deep down you're not. So I think that's some of the stuff we'll explore in today's episode, Owen. And this is where, you know, we, I saw this as an industry many years ago, 
um, when I was coming into the industry and I was learning about these things called risk profiles, how, you know, black and white, we try to make it, but it's not. And the idea is that basically you want to have a plan, some type of plan in place to invest for the long term, because the plan allows you to make better decisions under pressure. It's something that you can refer back to when things do go wrong, because they do eventually. You know, we saw that in 2020 with the COVID market kind of crash. There was so much fear and uncertainty. All of the headlines were really negative and really scary, not just from a financial perspective, but also from a, like a societal perspective, from a health perspective. And people just didn't know what to do. And so you've got to imagine that type of environment. And that's where a plan helps. But most plans are built upon this idea of what's kind of most appropriate for me and or us if you're in a couple. And the way you determine what's appropriate is basically you start to think about, okay, what could go wrong? And uh, what's my, my downside? Like what's my risk here? And how do I take an acceptable amount of risk? And the way we do that is we take what's happened in the past. So we take, you know, the returns of investments, the, the ups and downs, the volatility. And then we say to ourselves, based on what we know from 10, 20, 50, or 100 years of financial history, how can we formulate a plan that kind of stays within the risk constraints? So um, going into the future. But it's important to remember that we think, well, we know that based on averages, the stock market crashes probably five every five to seven years. So you, the first thing to do is prepare for yourself uh, in, your, in, in your mind, knowing that the stock market is going to crash. So that's a fall of 20% or more. So that's just like, you have to accept that. That's coming. Regardless of whether you think it or not, it's coming um, because it is. And the second part of it is basically just understanding that the next market crash is going to be different to the last one. History doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes, but it doesn't repeat itself. And so what I mean is the big crash of 2008, 2009 was um, the GFC, which was caused by financial uh, leverage, basically people taking on way too much debt to buy property and, and so on and so forth. The last crash, the last meaningful crash for a lot of people was COVID, and that was caused by a pandemic. Totally different. The next one, I dare say, is going to be totally different again. So no matter what you think, it's going to be uncertain. And so you have to find a way to deal with that uncertainty. And the way we try and think about it is through something called a risk profile. So Kate, can you explain to us basically what a risk profile is? I know you've done some digging here from the CFA Institute as well. How do financial planners and companies go about this and how can... What are, they, what are the kind of things that they take into account to decide what is a risk profile? Yeah. So risk profile is a term you'll see if you talk to a financial advisor. And it's also something you'll see when you're looking at your super funds website and looking at the different options, or maybe looking at a robo-advisor's website or a micro-investing app. So you'll see this term around. So I think it's a, a little bit, it's a good idea to look into it. And Financial advisors will often use the term risk profile when they're determining the level of risk that you would be willing to take with your finances and then using that information to determine the most appropriate financial products and investment strategies to sort of to give to you. And this is often done, they'll give you a questionnaire um, and that might ask questions like, do you need the money in the next five years? What is 
what would be your reaction if your portfolio fell 10, 20, 30%? If you're if the market fell 30%, would you be more likely to invest more money, do nothing, sell all, sell parts? So they'll ask all these questions uh, to determine what type of investor you are. And they might put you into a category like you're a conservative investor. And that might they might then offer you a strategy that is that has a greater proportion allocated to bonds and cash um, and some defensive assets that we talked about in a recent episode. Whereas if they put you into the high growth investor category, you might have a greater proportion of your portfolio invested in uh, Australian and US shares and emerging markets and small companies. And it's a really, it's a tool they use to sort of allocate your strategy. And this will often be part of that extensive statement of advice. Um, And it's really looking at your willingness and capacity to take risks with your money during your individual investment timeframe. So even though I'm uh, someone in their mid-20s, I might only have a 10-year investment timeframe before I want to do X, Y, Z with my money. And so suddenly that might make me, um, that might change my risk profile. And I, so I could be the same age, same person, but it depends on what my goal is that would change my risk profile. Um, And one of the, the CFA Institute describes risk profile as a blanket term to describe the various facts and investor traits that need to be taken into account to identify suitable investments for an investor. And you'll often see this on your super funds website as well. They'll say this portfolio is for high risk investors that have a seven plus year timeframe, or this is a conservative option for investors with a lower risk profile. So they'll use this term to describe what product might be appropriate for you. And then when it comes to your super fund, it will be up to you to decide what you want to do with that information and which product you want to choose. Yeah. So you you had some great kind of self-reflection questions there. The way, one of the things I, I think about is basically how long do you have to invest? And you touched it on, on it there. If you've got 10 years to invest, you should, at least according to theory, be able to take more risk than if you have say three years to invest, but there are other elements. Timeline is only one thing. So your superannuation fund can afford to invest for the long term because it's um, it's got a lot of time to recover and grow. So you know after most market crashes, the stock market has grown, or most financial markets have grown. The other thing about super is you can't touch it; like you can't withdraw the money. So whereas in a personal investing account, you can say, "Oh, I'm going to invest for 20 years." But then at the next market crash, you pull your money out, which then proves that there's something else that was in there that not just the time frame that impacts your risk profile. And oftentimes, that's how much you know about investing. So this is something that is really important too. The more you know about how the financial system works, the more confident you will be. Like For example, no doubt if you're listening to this podcast, you've heard someone say, but stock markets like gambling, right? And then you know that that is without a doubt the biggest fallacy about investing that's ever been put out there. It is nothing. The stock market is totally different to gambling. And the reality is the people that say that know nothing about actually what the stock market is or kind of what you know companies are and what they represent. Now, that's not a, like, I'm not saying this to be rude. It's just that their level of understanding is quite low. And they kind of use this generalization because it involves numbers and money. But the more you know, the more likely you are to make a more informed decision. And that's just, as, that's just a simple truth. The more you know, like, you know, the stock market represents ownership of businesses. 
the more likely you are to pick good businesses or to pick ETFs that invest in things that you believe have a long-term future. And the third thing is that I'll bring up is basically something that we just talked about off air, Kate, which is something called our temperament. And this is a much harder thing to define than our level of understanding of investing, which, you know, you can say, oh, I've been investing for five years, therefore I'm more experienced and I know a bit more for sure. But when it comes to your temperament, it's actually really hard to define what your temperament is or isn't. And I find that, you know, having more education helps you be uh, more calm under pressure. Having more money and a stable income helps you react less impulsively to stock market declines because you're not as worried. But the temperament piece of a risk profile, in my opinion, comes from a whole host of different things. And one of the things that we talked about was basically the environment that you're brought up in and your basic attitude to money. So Morgan Housel wrote this in the book, and I know we both like this line, which is in his book, in uh, The Psychology of Money, is it has more to do with how you behave than how much you know or how smart you are. Um, so you know, being good with money has more to do with how you behave. And a lot of us have relationships with money and investing that are kind of rooted in things that are different. Um, and not what you expect. So for example, um, I'll let you bring up the CFA Institute one in just a moment, Kate. But for example, I remember watching a presentation by Morgan, which showed that people that were born during the depression era, so in the 1930s, um, they were almost exclusively um, invested in cash because they were so scared that another depression would come. People born in the 70s and grew up in the 70s when inflation was very high wouldn't invest in the stock market and wouldn't keep their money in cash, they might put it in bonds. And people that are born in the 90s and the 2000s are much more likely to invest in the stock market because the stock market has performed exceptionally well. And so the environment around us actually influences who we are as well as, and that's the macro environment, as well as the people around us and our risk profile as well and our attitude towards money. So this is just like a big picture thing and it's pretty hard to bring that back to reality. But Kate, you found something interesting from the CFA Institute as well, which talks about kind of adolescence. Yeah. And I think we often talk about unpacking how our parents um, and close relatives spoke to us about money, but it actually goes even further than that because uh, one of the studies the CFA cited, um, a research study which was on um, the formation of risk preferences for individuals between the age of 16 and 25, found that this is the period in which most individuals form their beliefs about the world, society and life in general. And even if your parents didn't speak to you about money, they may have spoke to you about a lot of other things to do with their approach to risk and um, decision-making. And even in school, all of this shapes who you are today. So you might just, you might go, oh, I don't need to, I spoke to my parents about money or I didn't speak to my parents about money. But it's also about thinking, how was risk in your childhood? Did you take risks? Um, was this seen as a bad thing to go out of your comfort zone? Um, and another interesting thing they cited was that um, individuals who experienced at least one recession during those formative years between around 16 and 25 exhibited uh, politic sorry um, exhibited political and economic views later in life that were different from those who did not and this really changed the way they invested down the track and it uh, individuals could change uh, their behavior of how they sort of approach risk between that age but it did take a lot of work and they recommended, looking at uh, talking to your relatives and seeing how they approach all types of risk and 
not just about financial and even writing down how you feel about different events. And when you start investing, as we've mentioned before, even keeping a diary. And so you can actually look back and see how did you feel when you saw that company go down 10%? Uh, How did you feel when you made your first investment? How did you feel when you learnt X, Y, Z? And just using that to sort of even really unpack your childhood perceptions of risk when you make financial decisions, I think that's a really important thing to do. Yeah, that's that's it's fascinating, isn't it? So, you know, we talk about environment having a very big impact on the attitude to money. There's the obviously there's a massive debate around nurture versus nature in biology and science, generally speaking. But in finance, I think it's particularly the case. We we spoke to Tash Invest um, from Instagram. And she spoke about how around the dinner table, they used to talk about money, Um, whereas many families, it's taboo to talk about money. Like, for example, many people don't like to talk about what they earn, right? their salary. And we're taught, oh, no, 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 you don't don't ask how much someone earns or, oh, you don't ask someone what their net worth is or how much money they have. Oh, you know, you you don't talk about that sort of stuff. Well, why not? You know, why not? And that's just one of those things that we carry with us as a society that teaches us that it's not okay to talk about money and it's not okay to you know, put yourself out there and and talk about money in a way that's kind of open. And I think the more people do that, the more likely you are to look upon, you know, the world of investing and the world of money in a much more positive way and a much more proactive way. And you can deal with these things rather than putting the head in the sand. But if we're just coming back to making this more actionable for our listeners, I think, Kate, you brought up before that if you go into your super fund or your robo advisor or wherever, you will see risk profiles. Like they'll basically have investment strategies named after risk profiles. So they'll have things like conservative, balanced, growth, high growth. And if you think about that, conservative would be conservative risk profile. Balanced meaning that you're somewhere in the middle, which historically we would take that to mean 60% in shares, 40% in bonds. That's typically balanced. Growth means higher risk. So you would be more shares. So you'd be maybe say, you know, 75% in shares and 25% in bonds and high high growth equals high risk, which might be 80% or more in shares and 20% or less in bonds. And that's basically how we've aligned risk profiling with investment portfolios. And then, you know, we talked about this in the Facebook group and there's a massive thread on this, but Basically, that's how we've aligned the usefulness of a risk profile with what we then go and do in our portfolios. But as you've learned in this discussion, there's actually a lot more to it than just numbers in a spreadsheet. You've also got to be comfortable and understand how you would feel in certain scenarios. So some of those reflection questions that Kate's put together, which are also available in an article that she's written up, which we'll put in the show notes, are really important. Um, One of the things we did for our members recently, for our Rask Invest members, um, and our um, ETF members actually, is we we put out a document called an investment guide. And basically it's 15 pages of self-reflection. And you ask yourself, it covers everything basically. It says, how much, how many shares do you want? How many ETFs do you want? What kind of long-term goal do you have? What is your risk profile? Like what's the best, you know, where do you think you sit on the risk profile? What are you going to do when the stock market falls? Um, how are you going to rebalance your portfolio? And just doing exercises like that and self-reflection exercises is actually a great insight into how you actually fit, find yourself as an investor. And to your point about having a diary, tremendous, tremendous 
mental strategy because then you can go back and you can look and you can say, oh, in my diary on March 22nd, 2020, I was really freaked out about the stock market. But a month before that, I was investing heavily in you know, afterpay shares. So why maybe I wasn't as high risk as I thought I was. The only way you really know that is if you self-assess and you write those things down. Um, so I think those are some really interesting things anyway. I thought I'd bring that up. Yeah, absolutely. And you just you just don't know because you look at your super fund website, it's very clinical. Hey, here's a high risk profile. This is suitable for someone with this kind of risk profile and this time frame. Um, you might experience a market crash in one of every XYZ years, but it doesn't tell you how you're going to feel when that happens. And that's something you have to work out for yourself. And uh, we've put down a range of different um, reflection questions for you when you're trying to like work out where do you sit um, with the risk profile. I mean, I don't have a document personally that says I am a high growth investor. It's more of something internally that I know and understand and I've taken the steps to action. But I thought maybe these questions you might benefit from actually um, journaling, reflecting on and jotting some notes down. So I thought I'd share a few with you today. And one of the first ones I wanted to talk about was when do you actually plan on withdrawing money from your investments? Because that's really going to change your risk profile, what you should be investing in and what you do there. Because if you want the money in the next couple of years to buy a property, this is really going to change the risk profile of you as an individual rather than if you're using the money for retirement. And just think about your not all your portfolios and investments have to be you don't have to be high growth when it comes to every investment. When it comes to your super fund, you might be high growth because you know you've got 40 years before you need to use it. But your money outside of super, you might actually need it in the next five years. And so you take a very conservative approach to the investments and you keep most of your money in cash for that house deposit or whatever you have planned. So I don't think it it doesn't need to have to be a be or end all. You don't have to be one single type of investor, you can have multiple different approaches to investing in different areas of your life. I think that's, yeah, that's really, really interesting is people don't really compartmentalize where things are held. And I think if you can't touch super for a long time, then that should be treated differently than the money you can touch. Yeah, so that's that's really interesting as well. I, I like your second point here, Kate, which is how secure is your current and future income from sources like your salary and your other investments? I think that's super important too. Yeah, because if you are in a really insecure industry, if you are in a casual role, uh, that might mean you do need to have a greater emergency fund before you consider investing because you don't want to be forced to sell your investments when stuff hits the fan because as we saw in March last year, the market crashed at the same time as a lot of people were made redundant or were out of work. uh, And it wasn't quite the the market for finding a job right then. And so a lot happens at the same time. It's, It's not that the market crashes and every other area is fine. It's often the market crashes and other things are going on. So um, it's important to really take that into account. I think you saw an example of that during COVID when you found out which industries are considered essential. <laughs> um, we all kind of have a clear definition of what is an essential worker now. And um, I think that can kind of give you an idea of 
the most secure jobs in our society are things like emergency services, for example. Um, those types of businesses tend to be very stable. You tend to get you know, contracts or full-time employment. Um, it's backed by the government, et cetera, et cetera. But um, if you're in some of the, the less secure jobs, like unfortunately that happens to be a lot of hospitality, even to some extent some construction. And the arts industry. Arts industries, these types of industries, entertainment industries, these tend to be less secure jobs. And you know this because a lot of people in these industries have um, ABNs and work on contract and those types of things. So chances are if your income is more secure, you feel more secure in taking risk. We've had uh, some of our members have written in in the past and said, you know, I've lost my job, but thanks to the, the podcast and building that emergency fund, I was able to go six months and then find another job within that time. And it kind of provided that safety net. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done that. So having your personal finances in order and trying to secure that stable income definitely helps. So yeah, take it to someone who runs a small business. They can be pretty, they're pretty sketchy at times. So if you're in a small business uh, as opposed to a big business, you might feel uh, less secure again. Um, but having that, that cash buffer definitely helps. Okay, Kate, what's the, the third kind of self-reflection question? Yeah. And the next one is when you're thinking about your investments and you're making investment decisions, considering the the impact of possible losses or gains, we often go into an investment going, this is a sure thing, or this is going to be one I need to invest in to uh, become a millionaire by the age of 50 or something like that. But we don't often think about the downside. And that's not really fun to think about. It's not really exciting to invest your money, invest $1,000 and go, oh, but it could go down to 700 or 500. Or if you're investing in a share, it could go to zero. But that's not the exciting part to think about. But I think to have a really realistic picture, and this often helps writing down why you're investing in this ETF or this company, actually thinking, well, what is the potential downside? And how will I feel if that eventuates? And what are the pros and cons of making this investment? And I think we touched on this a bit in our decision-making episode is actually um, looking at both sides and even writing down, if this investment falls 30%, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do nothing or do I actually want to own this company if it falls 30%? Like what will I do if it falls 10%? Just running through some different scenarios and essentially once you start making larger investments, it's good to have this all written down and you can come back to it to avoid making a decision in the moment when you're scared when the media is telling you that the sky is falling, when your friends are telling you you're in a really bad investment and you need to get out today or you're going to lose even more tomorrow, you can come back to this piece of paper and go, hey, this is what I intended in the first place. Has anything actually fundamentally changed apart from the market doesn't value the company at the same price as it did yesterday or um, something like that? It's a little bit different with ETFs, but just having that down when you're in a sound frame of mind that you can come back to when you're not in a sound frame of mind is really important. Like we've talked about some ETFs on the show recently. You know, we've seen some ETFs come to the market, like some of the more recent ones include like the semiconductor ETF by ETF Securities. We've seen other ETFs come to the market, like the hydrogen ETF, clean ETF, which we talked about not too long ago, the CLNE. Uh, many different ETFs have come to the market that sound really fascinating, right? They, they target really exciting sectors. But there is a lot of downside risk to these ETFs too. These are probably some of the higher risk ETFs in, in, in Australia right now. And yet most people invest in them not thinking about those downside risks. So that's why it's always important to think about that. And this is not just you know us just saying this. 
Warren Buffett's two rules for investing are don't lose money. And then the second rule is don't forget rule number one. But if you read books like um, The Outsiders by Will Thorndike, which is a fantastic business, and Warren Buffett is one of the eight CEOs actually profiled in that, uh, or even Value Investing by Sonken and a few others. And these, these books actually profile great investors. And what they actually find is that the first question that any of them ask is, how could this go wrong? And so it's knowing that okay, if this does go wrong, what's the worst that can happen? If it does go well, what's the most you know, upside for me? And it's, it's important to ask it in that order um, because if you're not asking it in that order, you're probably blinded. You're probably just going to something bushy-eyed and you're just going straight for it. So I brought out a bushy-tailed, sorry. So like you're just going straight into it. And um, I would say consider that risk first. That's a great point. Um, okay, the next one is kind of just circling back to what we talked about earlier. How much do you know about money and investing? Mm. And that education piece is so important. I, I mean, according to the ASX data, a lot of new investors have jumped in in the last two years because, I mean, everyone's had a lot of time on their hands to start investing for the first time. But if you haven't done your homework and actually put in the work to understand how ETFs work, what is the product? How is it structured? Um, how does the share market work? What are the different industries? How? What does the last 100 years look like? even looking at some of the Vanguard asset class charts, which actually show you that the last 100 years have not been a smooth ride on the market. I think it's really important to actually go back and get some of those foundations first because that will make you much more comfortable in the long run in understanding the risks and rewards of investing. And that could be through taking our free um, ETF and share investing courses on RASC education, listening to some awesome finance podcasts to get a really diverse uh, array of viewpoints and um, to sort of to bolster your understanding of the industry as a whole and uh, reading books by those much wiser than us um, who have been around for many decades and have seen the good and the bad of investing. I, I think that will give you a much more well-rounded picture and it will hopefully make you uh, help you make better decisions in a period of market volatility when emotions are running high and you are at risk of making a decision that's not great for your financial future. I just think the more you know about investing, the better you'll be in that type of situation. And having good resources too. I remember, um, I'm going to butter my own bread here, Kate, so apologies, but I remember during COVID, there's CBA analysts um, come out. They probably... It probably was taken out of context, but there was a line in there that effectively said house prices could fall 32% over the next 12 months. And that is what the media ran with. And it was just, you know, blood in the streets kind of thing. Well, that did not happen. In fact, in many places, it went the opposite direction. And during that time, we we're saying, just chill out. It's fine. You know, it could actually go the other way. And it did. Um, and so having resources around you to learn and to cope with that are really important, especially if you haven't experienced a, a crash in your first time. Like you said, so many people that are, are coming to investing now haven't experienced that, but also so many of the people that are giving you advice haven't experienced that either. So ask them too, you know, how they reacted uh, during that that period as well, because they, may, you know, they may not have experienced it. And sometimes you just have to experience it to know how you how you're going to go. Yeah, and if you can find any uh, maybe slightly older investors in your life um, or your community or your network that have been investing for a few decades and maybe ask them what happened in 08 or 09, did that affect you? Did you change the way you invest? Did you just kind of 
keep going on with your life and it didn't affect you at all. Uh, even if you can find someone as back far back as like the 2000 tech crash. Uh, I, I know I've spoken to a few family members who some uh, came out of that quite negatively. And so just understanding that, even if you can't experience yourself, can you um, learn from some of the experiences of those around you um, who have gone through that period? Yeah. I think it's fair to say that, Kate, it would be much better to earn 10% a year for the next 20 years than it would be to try and earn 50% for the next two. If you can try and earn 10% for the next 20 years, you're going to set yourself up tremendously well because we know that we've done the compound interest episodes, we've done the fire movement episodes. 10% a year would be absolutely amazing if you can achieve that. And if you just think about that, you probably don't need to go and try and invest in the next hot thing or do this or do that. You can just use sensible strategies. And one thing that many people probably aren't aware of is that, unless you've studied finance, is that... You think by adding bonds to your portfolio, um, which is which are boring, low returning things, that you actually, or even dividend shares, like people think dividend shares are boring because they pay dividends. Like when studies show that over, well, about half of the return from the stock market comes from dividends in Australia. But what what we what we think is that oh, we're adding this, therefore we're not going to do as well. We're not going to become as wealthy over the long term. But what studies actually show is that. Um, yes, you know, from one year to the next, you might not have the same returns as someone else who was all invested in growth stocks or something like that. Um, what it actually shows is that you can actually get better returns by taking less risk. So there is such a thing as too much risk. So keep that in the back of your mind too. At the moment, everything looks great. Everything, everything here in the late parts of 2021, um, investing in the stock market seems sexy. You know, everything's going up and to the right. That doesn't always happen. So just prepare yourself for those times. Yeah, because you can you can be a major risk to your own financial future in terms of the way you react in a, a market crash. And so that is something you need to think about. When people rattle off 100 different risks of a product, if you read a product disclosure statement, you'll see so many different differently labelled risks. But Rarely is it meant you won't see the individual risk, the risk that you will make the wrong decision at the wrong time. And selling all of your investments in a market crash can set you back decades. And if you don't invest again because you are, you think the world's against you and you think investing is gambling after that time, it could set you back substantially and you might not have a fantastic financial future. So I do think it's important to think about what risk do you pose to your own financial goals? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I interviewed Julia Forrest, who's a fund manager yesterday, and she started her career in the early 90s during the recession. She actually couldn't get a job for a few years. So she went and worked in organized crime uh, for a little while Wow! Uh, until the finance industry came back and she could get a job. But she said that basically impacted the rest of her life um, and how she invests today is very conservative as a result. But the key thing here is Julia has been a fund manager for about 20 years. There aren't many fund managers that have been around for such a long time. And that might show you that, you know, maybe her approach of, you know, focusing on the risk first actually works for the long term. So something to keep in the back of your mind. Uh, Kate, is there anything else you wanted to add about risk profiling or what our listeners should take away from this? I think we've covered a lot today, Owen, and there's a lot for people to reflect on. And yeah, I I probably just note that it's very difficult to work out what your own risk profile is. Um, And that's why financial advisors even 
you will have that whole questionnaire and then they're still relying on you to be honest with yourself. And um, I think it is worth, I mean, you, we can get very obsessed with exactly what ETF to buy and which brokerage account, and we can get really caught up in all of the nitty gritty and actually forget to think about our personal tolerance to risk and how we might um, react in any of these circumstances, which can be much more damaging than just picking the slightly more expensive brokerage account. So I'd love if people do spend a little bit more time thinking about some of these, maybe reflecting on some of the questions. Um, I've included more resources in the show notes that you can explore this idea further and get into some of the literature about risk profiles if you really want to take that academic path as well. Yeah, I think it's a good, good time. Now is a good time as any just to reflect on how much risk do you have in your portfolio? How, many, how much do you have in cash? How much do you have in bonds? How much do you have in property even? How much do you have in shares? And then just do that assessment, do that pie chart for yourself. Use the Google sheet or whatever you want to do to, to, to crunch those numbers and, and figure it out and see how you stack up against where you think your risk profile is according to what super funds are saying, according to what robo-advisors are saying. Just go and check on yourself um, and write it down. Cool. Okay. Who, who ever thought that risk, risk management and risk profiles should be such fun? No, it's definitely a topic I've become really interested in over the last few years as I've learned more about it. And um, as you learn more about individuals' behavior, you just realize how personal this all is. And there's no one size fits all. And uh, I don't even think a questionnaire can really solve this problem. It does require a lot of reflection and making, having a diary and writing yourself some rules and talking to people from your childhood about how you reacted. So, yeah, there's a lot to it and it'll be interesting to keep exploring further. Yeah, jump into the Rask Australia Facebook group if you want to talk about it because it's a fascinating thing. I actually asked a question on a, a live session I was doing the other day. What's the most anyone has ever invested in one company? And someone in the chat said 95% of their money was invested in one company. If I that guess was if on a you've risk only profile, got $1,000 invested. <laughs> True. If you only had a thousand bucks, then, <laughs> then you, you could have $150 of it. And I just thought that was, that is, what kind of risk profile is that? I don't know. Um, so I'd love to hear what you guys have to think in the Facebook group. So yeah, we can continue the conversation there. Kate, as always, thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au.